they're dismissed. All right, uh, we're in the book of Job for the uh, two weeks in a row. Uh, there's a lot of sermon material in the book of Job. <clears throat> so I had to narrow the focus a little bit down today. Um, Job uh, begins, the book of Job begins with um, Satan entering into the courtroom of God somehow with the holy council of God, angels. And uh, Satan is contending that, hey, God, people on earth only love you and serve you because of the many benefits you give to them. It was a transactional relationship, you know. They wouldn't love you otherwise. And, and, and God says, wait a minute. There's this guy named Job. He's a righteous man, according to God. In Job 1.8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Job went so far as to even offer sacrifices to God after family get-togethers. You know, he had ten children, seven sons, three, three daughters, and as they got together, Job thought, I wonder if my sons or daughters did anything that would have been displeasing to God. So on behalf of his kids, he would offer sacrifices to God so that God would not, you know, punish give con you know, the consequences of their bad behavior. You know how parties are. Your servant Job, Satan said, is a phony. He only serves you, God, because of the many blessings you've given him, not because he really loves you. So God said, okay, well, Satan, let's see if this rings true. God allowed Satan to take everything away from Job. His health, his possessions, all of his family members except for his wife, um, and so, and eventually he took, took away Job's health, but he was not allowed to kill Job. And so Satan had a heyday on Job, and Job suffered greatly. But as Job sat there in his suffering, hearing all this news of, his, of the marauders coming and stealing all of his possessions, his cattle, his uh, whatever, destroying his property, and, and also how his kids are all killed by disaster as he sat there he searched his heart and his conscience lord is there something wrong in me that this punishment this suffering came upon my life lord show me and as he searched his conscience and heart he found nothing he was clean and clear before god have you ever ridden in a car and without shock absorbers like an old car, like from your teenage years, have you? I am currently. It's really fun. And you feel every bump, like this, especially if you're riding in the back of the van, right? But shock absorbers don't eliminate the bumps in the road. They just absorb the shock so that you have a comfortable ride. We are called to be shock absorbers for those who are suffering, it doesn't eliminate the pain in their lives, but it absorbs some of the shock of those who are suffering. Well, Job experienced bad comfort from his friends. He also experienced rather good comfort from his own theology and understanding. And then he experienced great comfort from his creator, God, we find at the end of the book. So that's kind of the outline today. Let's focus on the bad comfort and then the good comfort, and then next week we'll explore a little bit of the great comfort. 
Verse 2, when they saw Job from a distance, these three friends, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. His friends did a pretty good job for the first seven days. I mean, they were faithful presence with Job. They offered him nothing but their presence, and that would have been comforting. But after seven days of sitting and thinking, his friends could no longer contain what they were really thinking. After all, we speak what comes forth from the heart. And so we begin to hear what they're really thinking, and they offer bad comfort. Eliphaz was the first friend to finally speak after a week. Eliphaz said, The truth that I'm about to share was given to me in a secret, as though whispered in my ear. It came to me in a disturbing vision at night. In other words, God gave me this word for you, Job. Can a mortal be innocent before God? Can anyone be pure before the Creator? Who, being innocent, has ever perished and suffered like this, Job? Job, you are suffering because there's something guilty within you. In other words, if you're suffering a personal loss or crisis in your life, it's because you have some unrepentant sin that's unresolved. In particular, Job was accused of resentment or jealousy or just his foolish choices that he harbored within. Therefore, Job, if you simply repent, God will hear your prayers and he will restore your life back to normalcy. Well, we know from chapter 1 that this counsel that this friend offered, who he received directly from God, was false conf, uh, counsel. It was a lie. We know this because we know the backstory from chapter 1, that, that Job was righteous and he was innocent. Be cautious of what you share with someone as from the Lord, especially when you're called to confront someone. Be very, very careful. The Lord told me to tell you, friend, Okay, unless you've really prayed for it and God has confirmed it over and over again. Be very careful. His friends got it wrong, dreadfully wrong. In fact, they presented lies to Job, which caused more excruciating pain rather than comfort. So Job searches his heart after he hears this word from Eliphaz, and he de determines that he is still innocent before God. Well, this infuriates him, and as well as his friends. So in chapter 8, we read of the second friend, Bildad, who has finally heard enough from Job. And he said, how long will you go on like this? You sound like a blustering wind. Now pray to God, and he will restore you, Job. Job defends his righteousness once again. And we hear of this dialogue, or we read of this. And then in chapter 11, the third friend speaks, Zophar. Should I remain silent while you babble on like this, Job? When you mock God, shouldn't someone make you ashamed? God is no doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. Yeah, you've lost your children. You've lost your property. You've lost all your animals. You've lost everything, your reputation, but you're getting punished far less for what you deserve. Hmm. Chapter 12, you people, Job responds, you people really know everything, don't you? When you die, you know, wisdom will die with you, won't it? 
we can sense an increase in tension between Job and these three friends as they're becoming in more and more impatient with him and he with them. They're at war with words, in a sense. And then finally, in chapter 16, Job has had enough, and he said, what miserable comforters you are. Will your long-winded speeches never end, please? If I were in your shoes, if you were suffering and I was not, then I would encourage you I would try to take away your grief, not add to it. You know, true comforters will do what the friends did initially, offer their faithful presence without saying a single word. They would be good listeners rather than offer quick, pat answers or spiritual platitudes. Even if the pat answers happen to be true, at least even in part, for example, they were saying, if you confess your sins and speak the truth, if you repent, Job, then God will heal you and you'll find joy again, which was not the truth. It sounded right, seemed right. Later on, they'd say, if only you had greater faith, Job, and trusted in God, then he would end your suffering. Well, here are some of the spiritual platitudes that we often say to people who are suffering. If you, uh, uh, God won't give you more than you can handle, Oh, that comforts me. At least, at least your loved one is in a better place now. Uh, God must know that you need this trial in order for you to grow in character. God must have a great ministry in store for you, so count it all joy. <clears throat> Think of the many other blessings that you have that you could be thankful for. Don't worry, God's working it all out for the good. Now, all of these may be true or partially true, but they do not offer comfort to one who is grieving, especially when it's given right away. Rather, people need empathy, and empathy is sharing the emotional feelings with the other. In the words of the Apostle Paul, it's weeping with those who weep. 1 Kings 19, Queen Jezebel uh, was pursuing Elijah after Elijah had that great confrontation with the 450 prophets of Baal to see whose God is real. And of course, you know that God came down and, and, uh, and, and he worked in Job's sacrifice and, and just consumed his sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal, they just marched on and on and cut themselves and Baal never showed up for them. And so Elijah had the false prophets of Baal killed that day. There was great victory for the people of God in Israel. But when Queen Jezebel heard that her 450 prophets of Baal were killed, then she wanted the neck of Elijah. So Elijah escaped into the des desert. He ran for his life. He sat beside this broom tree, whatever that is, and he, he sunk into despair and depression. And he prayed, God, I want my life to end. I'm filled with fear and deep despair and depression. Just take my life. And so how did God comfort Elijah? What words did God offer Elijah? We can learn from God, our creator. God said, hey, angel, go down there and feed Elijah with food, give him something to drink. So Elijah wakes up, there's an angel. Angel said, eat and drink. Elijah consumes the food, drinks the water, falls back asleep. After he wakes up again for a second time, God says, hey, go down there and give him more food and drink for his journey. And so he did. And that was it. That gave strength and hope 
to, Joe, or to uh, Elijah. God said no words. He just offered him food and drink, his presence, his sustenance. Why was the advice of Job's friend, friends not helpful? Once again, they bought into the lie that all suffering is a result of one's disobedience or unrepentant sin. And all blessings, on the other hand, are because one is obedient and living righteously. Job, you must be guilty of some sin that deserves punishment. Therefore, confess your sins and God will restore you. Well, th these lies have been around from day one. And then even in Jesus' day, in John chapter 9, when Jesus was walking along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus responded quite emphatically, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God may be displayed. And then the people watched the miracle take place where this man received his sight. This man who had been blind for years, he must have prayed and prayed and prayed. Finally, the glory of God was displayed. Was it because of his sin? Jesus said, no. That was bad comfort. In the name of God, it was bad comfort from Job's friends. The, the second point is a better comfort where did Job find a better comfort pretty good comfort it came from his own theology his own understanding who, of who God was it gave Job the freedom to be honest with God even through his messy emotional prayer life initially after these losses Job expressed words that any man of God would express that we would expect in the midst of great disappointment Job said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we think, whoa, I could not have responded like this. But then just seven short days later, actually seven long days later, when Job's skin is breaking open, oozing with pus from boils from head to foot, his body covered with maggots and scabs. Job had to take a piece of broken pottery to scrape his body and the sores off of him like this because he was in such excruciating pain. When Job finally speaks after this long week, his tune changes. And then Job begins to question God's judgment. In chapter 6, he said, God, if you knew this was coming, why didn't you let me be born dead? Even now, God, I wish you would crush me to death. I wish you would reach out your hand and kill me. Notice, Job never thought of taking his own life because he said, it's not mine to take. I belong to God. So God, you take my life. In chapter 13, I'm going to argue my case with God. Show me my rebellion and my sin, God. Tell me what I've done wrong. Why do you treat me as your enemy? This is unfair. I question your judgment. Secondly, Job questioned God's fairness and justice. Chapter 3, why, God, do you refuse to help me when I've done nothing wrong? Have I refused to help the poor or crush the hopes of widows? Have I been stingy with my food and refused to share it with orphans? No, from childhood I've cared for orphans like a father. In all of my life I've cared for widows and clothed the homeless. God, I've lived a righteous life. In chapter 9, 
You attack me with a storm and repeatedly wound me without cause. You will not let me catch my breath and fill me instead with bitter sorrows. God, why are you doing this to me? How is this just? And then Job questions God's love. Oh God, you have ground me down and devastated my family. As if to prove I've sinned, you have reduced me to skin and bones. Or what do you gain by oppressing me? Why do you reject me, the work of your hands, while smiling on the schemes of the wicked? In fact, Job is not just questioning God's love, he's blaming God. He's calling God out on this. He wrongly believes that God is behind all this suffering when he said in uh, verse in chapter 13, though he slay me, yet I will still trust in him. Though you slay me, God, you are the one slaying me. I'm still going to trust in you. Well, he's blaming God, and we know the backstory that it's really Satan behind all this suffering and injustice. Were you not surprised as you read through Job, either this last week or whenever you have before, were you not surprised that all of the blaming and complaining and yelling and justifying that Job directed toward God? You think, how could that be? You can't pray like that. That's disrespectful to a holy God. Are we not instructed to rejoice in the Lord always? Are we not always instructed to trust in the Lord, not grumble or complain? But Job finds comfort in the freedom that he experiences in being totally honest and authentic with God, laying all of his junk and all of his complaining and, and grumbling before God. And what does God do? Well, he said in chapter 23, my bitter soul must complain. I cannot keep from speaking. I must express my anguish. And what did these messy prayers translate to? It translated to a personal trust in God, despite his complaining. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. God might kill me. I have no other hope. I'm going to argue my case before him, yet I will still trust in him. Think about it this way. If Job didn't have a trust for God, if he were an atheist, he wouldn't be complaining to God. He, he, he was still trusting in God. He was still falling into God's arms. He was still pleading as a helpless creation. He was still pleading before God. Have you ever had a child who you had to disappoint by telling them they, they couldn't do something? And it's so disappointing and disheartening. And they even disagree with you. You know, you've had a disagreement. So what would you want your kid to do after that disappointment? Would you want them to clam up? Would you want them to stuff their feelings, run into their bedroom and just close the door, get under the covers? Is that what you'd want, or would you want your child to open up authentically, even emotionally, and, and, and just share all the disappointment and disagreement with you? I think we'd prefer the latter, wouldn't we? Or what if your child got hurt by a friend at school? Would you want to listen to them after school, or would you rather have them just stuff their feelings and and hide in their room again and suffer silently of course as parents we would want to be there for our kids we want to listen to all the yuck and all the pain and and all the tears 
or our Heavenly Father does that with us. Derek Kinner said, the fact that God places stories like Job in the Bible shows us the kind of God we have. He understands how we speak when we are so desperate. He understands. He's our Heavenly Father. I mean, if we can understand our children, wouldn't God understand His children? God can handle our honest emotions. He created them. He's an emotional God. He understands them. He desires them. He, he regards them as sacrifices at his altar. We're told in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is what Job was doing throughout the entire book of Job. He was wrestling with God. He had to contend with these friends who were giving him false platitudes. But he was also wrestling with God, and God said, I'm pleased. We don't have a Heavenly Father who says, <clears throat> if you dare speak one word of disrespect toward me, then I'll get pretty ticked off, and I will unleash my holy wrath against you. No, we'd rather have a Heavenly Father who understands when we freely come to him with all of our messy prayers and honesty, even if it looks like blame, even if it looks like doubt, Furthermore, God understands that healing takes time. It's a process. And that's why we've developed the five stages of grief, right? The grief process, which includes, by the way, anger and bargaining and depression. If we're ever to get to acceptance or healing, we're going to have to experience the other three. Those who try to stuff their feelings and, and, and they put on their happy faces, I'm good, I'm praise the Lord, you know. I just lost all my kids, but praise the Lord, he's good to me. And, you know, we put on our Christian smiles. We will be psychologically and emotionally damaged if we don't go through these stages of grief. Job found great comfort in his freedom to express his mess, messy and erratic feelings to God. <clears throat> But weren't Job's negative feelings a demonstration of his lack of faith? I mean, you can't speak so negatively like this with all these doubts and all these accusations, and, and that be faith, can you? Oftentimes people will accuse others of lacking faith when, when they hear words of disappointment or anger or confusion and when there's all this negative talk. You can't talk like that. You're a believer. You got, you're the child of Most High God. You can't talk like that. You're not demonstrating faith. I recently spoke to an out-of-state friend, actually a couple, who went through really hard times. And as I was talking to them, you know, I was give, giving all these thoughts to share with them, all these spiritual words of wisdom to share with them. And as I began to do that, I began to feel the conversation shut down because I was offering these spiritual platitudes to them and these these pat answers, if you will, and they were not ready to hear. You know, I love, I love the quote, if you tell me, if you give me your opinion when I don't ask for it, I will consider it an offense. And, and so God had to discipline me and shut me up. He said, John, be quiet. Listen. Weep with those who weep. Job's honest and messy words to God conveyed his faith in God. After all, faith is simply admitting our desperate need for God. 
Anytime we cry out to him in our weakness, anytime we cry out for strength when we're weak or, or for mercy when we've, when we've failed or, or for wisdom when we don't know where to go or, or for healing when we're sick, anytime we ask for that, we're demonstrating faith. And someone might say, well, you need greater faith. If you're still sick, it, doesn't, it means you didn't have great enough faith. How much faith do you need? Well, good question. Jesus was asked this. When the, his disciples were unable to heal a, a young boy who was demon-possessed, when Jesus came upon the scene and the disciples were frustrated because they couldn't pray the demons out, the disciples said, well, what, what gives here, Jesus? And Jesus said, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain over there, move here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. On another occasion, the disciples found that it was very difficult to forgive those jerks who offended them. And Jesus said, you need to forgive them. How many times, Jesus? Uh, seven times? No, 70 times seven. And they said, I can't do that, Lord. Increase our faith. And he said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And the mustard seed was the smallest seed in that ancient world why couldn't the disciples forgive or cast out the demons was it because they didn't have strong enough faith no Jesus said you just need a mustard seed amount of faith and anytime you call upon my name that's a mustard seed of faith the disciples didn't have um, the disciples simply had misplaced faith they had faith in themselves Leon Morris commentator wrote the disciples had been treating their power to cast out the devils as a new possession of their own a kind of personal power that they received on both occasions Jesus instructed his disciples that they if they had a tiny faith of mustard seed they could do miraculous things now, a seed can do nothing until it's removed from our hand. It'll just sit there in the package or in our finger or hand. It can do nothing unless we plant it in the ground and put it in the earth, cover it with dirt, and let God do his thing. Only God can make it grow. But it has to re be removed from our hands. Get out of the way. Give it to God. Anytime we pray to God in desperation, Lord, you take it. You take it, Lord. I, I need healing. I need strength. I need wisdom. Take it, Lord. God said, that's enough faith I need. Or faith is also like a clutch. You know, I, I learned to drive in my dad's paint truck, which was when they were on vacation, and they didn't know that I was taking the truck out but when they were on vacation. I was like a junior in high school, and I took the truck out. It was winter, and my, there were hills in my town. So I found myself on a hill in this standard truck where you have to shift, you know, like this with a clutch I had no idea what a clutch was and I you know jerking up and up through the town like this that's how I learned to drive a standard car I never once said to my friend you got to come and check out this clutch in this truck check out that clutch it's awesome I'm going to replace it I'm going to I'm going to purchase a better clutch a shinier one oh man the clutch simply releases the power of the engine Simply like putting it in, pushing it in. When we pray to God, it's like pushing in the clutch. That's all we do. The engine is God. The power belongs to God. 
It's not the size of our faith that accomplishes miracles. You need greater faith, brother. No, it's not the size of our faith. It's the size of our God who accomplishes the miracles in response to our mustard seed faith. When we strive to be people of great faith, we mistakenly place our faith in our great faith rather than in our great God. You need more faith. Okay, all right, I'm going to, I have more faith. I believe, I believe, I believe. Then you're trusting in you. God doesn't want to put that burden on you. If they're not healed, it's because they didn't have enough faith. Quit it. That is a lie and it's false teaching. Mustard seed faith. And Jesus demonstrated this kind of mustard, or Job demonstrated this mustard seed faith throughout the entire book when he turned to God over and over and over and over again. And we know at the end of the book that God was honored with Job's responses despite all of his outbursts. So much so that he dedicated an entire book into his Bible about this man, Job, who had a messy life. And he's, Job is inspired, or God used Job to inspire millions of people for thousands of years. <clears throat> James 5 says, And you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance, have seen what the Lord finally brought about in his life. God ultimately says, my servant Job has honored me. And you three friends, in your self-righteousness, with all your Christian truths, you have dishonored me. We'll learn more about that next week when we look at the best comfort, which comes from God. But what did we learn today, just in review? We learned that we need not buy into the age-old lie that all suffering is a result of our disobedience, first of all. Some may be, but much is not. Secondly, we've learned that we need to resist the temptation to offer quick, pat answers and spiritual platitudes to those who are suffering. We need to be present. The ministry of presence with people who are hurting. And then thirdly, God receives our honest and messy prayers. They demonstrate faith in God, which will both please and honor him. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ here today. I thank you, Lord, that they've come to sit under the authority of your word, Lord, and, this, and worship you in spirit and truth. I thank you, Lord, that you've spoken to us today. I pray, Lord, that you help us to know how to uh, apply it to our lives, whether it be our personal life or lives of loved ones or friends. Lord, may we represent you. And may we be a godly comfort and a great comfort to those who are suffering, I pray. Lord, use us as your hands and feet, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.